when I was at Lauren's house, we got this fax from uh, this journal called Tricycle. And, uh, it's the children's journal. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, the, and also from the uh, Wisdom uh, Publishing House, they're going to publish one of my books, and then the Tricycle Magazine wants to print a chapter from this book, and the chapter that they want to print in the Tricycle is uh, one on uh, investigating space. (laughs) (laughs) There seems to be a it seems it's maybe a sign of the times where, I mean, they <coughs> we're at a point maybe in many, many humans are at that place in their lives where uh, they're, they're, they're more turning toward an intuitive, trying to maybe return or develop a more intuitive understanding. Of, of life, of conscious experience. And I think for many, many people starting out, they merely wanted some form of happiness. You know, meditation was a, maybe some kind of therapy you could do to, to make yourself happy or to get some kind of uh, high state of bliss get more on the level of getting high and uh, and finding <coughs> happiness and of course uh, happiness is, is part of the experience of meditation but it's also happiness is impermanent and uh, as much as we can uh, meditate uh, uh, in a way that we we become tranquil and have blissful experiences most of our life we have to deal with the uh, ordinariness of just uh, getting up, going to bed, putting on your clothes, taking them off, taking a bath, washing the dishes, eating food, sitting around waiting. Now modern, modern cities are places that you have to develop patience because they have traffic jams all the time. And in Bangkok, for example, it's the, uh, the worst traffic problems I've ever seen. Sometimes you have to wait three or four hours. <laughs> and uh, in Europe, the European cities have these problems. Uh, so that waiting, but also waiting is a part of life. We, uh, the sense of having to wait for something. So much of our life is just in the waiting. Waiting for something to happen. Say, maybe most of our life, say we live to 80, 90 years old, most of it is spent in in rather neutral experiences, not, not the extremities of, say, real excitement or romance or adventure 
uh, nor in particular uh, their opposites in, in really depressed states or extreme forms of fear and uh, negative experiences. So much of life is just bland, tasteless, neither one thing nor another. And that, and then so we, we generally don't notice this. We, we, uh, we, if we are conditioned to want happiness and, and uh, get out of suffering, then, uh, then we're always trying to find something kind of exciting or something interesting, something that interests us, something that, that absorbs our attention, that inspires. Something, or on a sensual level, just eating something or drinking something. We can spend, people spend hours every day munching on things. Just because it's, it's a, just for something to be doing, some kind of sense experience that's pleasurable. <clears throat> but contemplate this, this, this neutrality, this ordinariness. And uh, Ajahn Chah was very good at pointing to the he was always saying in the Thai Thai language, he's saying "tamada uh, tamada." The word "dhamma" in Thai they use a T, and instead of "dhamma" they say "tamma." Tamada means ordinariness, the ordinary. And uh, but the the uh, conditioned mind is usually going to the extraordinary or the extreme. So something interest, interesting is the state of getting interested or inspired or happiness even or, or uh, excitement. All these are, say, one extreme and then they're, they're opposite. Is suffering or boredom, uh, just, uh, say, uh, or uh, fear, anxiety, worry, depression, so heaven and hell. When we talk about heaven and hell, we, we're talking about happiness and suffering. People ask me, is there a real heaven and hell? Or do you believe in heaven and hell? Then there's that Zen story, one of those Zen stories about the samurai asking the Zen master about heaven and hell. Zen master then uh, says some kind of cutting and insulting words and the samurai gets really angry and he says, oh, that's hell. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, he says something, uh, he, he tells them that he, he relieves this, this anger and then he says, oh, that's heaven. So, so heaven and hell are, are just that, they're the, the extremities of emotional experience. So it doesn't matter if you, you know, if there's a heaven up there and a hell down there. But you, we experience it daily, heaven and hell. But the, the the ordinariness, like the silence, the sound of silence, or the breath, or the ordinary uh, neutral feelings of your own body, say there, we we have to notice them, don't we? Because they're not extreme; they don't grab our attention. 
like extremity grabs our attention. That's why it's easy to absorb into anything that is extreme, like violence is very absorbing. And when you, the, the movies uh, always have to have a lot of sex and violence because those are, those are exciting and absorbing activities. Seeing people murdered, slaughtered, butchered, tortured, really exciting. <laughs> Horror films, isn't it? They're exciting. Dracula, vampires, and blood sucking is exciting. <laughs> this kind of thing it excites the mind. Anything sexual is exciting. So if you, if a movie wants to get a large, uh, get a lot of money back, they have to have a lot of sex and violence in it. And romance is exciting. So these are exciting conditions absorb our attention, or that which is extreme. But where, where our attention wanders is in the ordinariness of life. That's why we tend to wander around in our lives, always looking for the next thing to, to be excited with or to be absorbed into. <clears throat> so that's why meditation is paying attention, not, not seeking extremes or exciting experiences, but beginning to awaken, because it's a, an awakened state of mind. You're, you're, you're paying attention to what you don't usually notice or uh, what you're, which is the neutrality, the breath of your own body or the, the ordinary sensations or sensitivity of your, of your body or the, or the silence. Or the absence of things, the absence of excitement. When we have egos, you know, we're full of ourselves, what I think, what I feel, my life, what I've done, me, 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 me. And then we don't notice when there's no me. We're usually full of the sense of me as an ongoing experience. But they when we're mindful, we're beginning to recognize when there is no me, when there is a self and when there isn't. We, we contemplate the absence of suffering or the absence of attachment. We don't, these things don't grab your attention because they're they're not, they're not extremities. So in the, say, the unconditioned, unborn, uncreated, unoriginated, the non-self, the non-suffering, the desirelessness, non-anger, non-greed, non-delusion, You have to pay attention to, to realize and, and observe that, to notice it. Because they don't grab your attention. What grabs your attention is self and desire and uh, anger and greed and delusion and uh, the conditioned, the born, the created and the originated. So they, they're, the, they're the things that 
they tend to grab, we tend to absorb into or seek identity or attachment. We form attachments to these conditions. So you can see that, that in meditation then the, the emphasis is on the impermanent nature of conditioned phenomena, seeing the anicca, dukkha anatta, and of realizing the unconditioned, or the deathless, or desirelessness, or non-grasping, non-anger, non-greed, non-self, non-suffering. That's why it, uh, it, they, they can say this is self-inquiry, or you ask yourself, ask questions to yourself. Questioning is a way of stopping the thinking mind, isn't it? Like we ask a question, then you then ask a question to yourself, and then your thinking mind stops for a moment. Think, like, who am I? There's a blank there, isn't there? Ask yourself now, silently, inwardly, <laughs> who am I? There's a blank, isn't there? The thinking mind doesn't, isn't, doesn't work right then. How much does it matter? You don't care about that. You're, you're not trying to, you don't need to name, but you're beginning to notice the, the, the mind when there's no thought. Or, I, I also have, have developed techniques around deliberate thinking, deliberately thinking something in order to, to observe the thoughts and the space around them. So, they, who am I? I'm Sumato Bhikkhu, or I am Ajahn Sumato. I have many names, I forget which one I, I forget which one you're used to. Ajahn Sumato. I'm Ajahn Sumato. And then, but I deliberately think, think there's, before I, I make this determination, I'm going to think this thought, and then there's a blank, a space or a silence. I am thinking inwardly now. And there's a I, then there's, it's around. It's not, it's not, a, it's a, you know, you can say I, and then there's a blank. The mind, the thinking mind's not filling it up at that moment. So you're noting, you're noticing this. Because otherwise, when we're obsessed with ourselves, our desires, our fears, then we, we just, we just carry on endlessly, you know, thinking, thinking, thinking. And then we're trying to resist the thinking, we're trying to stop the thinking. I don't want to think. I'm tired of thinking. Or we get tired of being somebody. You know? We get fed up with having to exist. We all like to go to sleep at night and, and, go, and go into sleep consciousness. How many of you like to, to drink coffee just before you go to bed and lay awake all night? <laughs> <laughs> think, think, think. Yeah. 
And we love to go to bed and just drop into nice non-existence, not having to be anything, anybody. Such a relief. Or we have, uh, you know, some people think suicide's a way out of a way to solve this problem. Just kill yourself, and then you, then you, because uh, you don't want to exist. But I wouldn't trust that, you know. <laughs> because it's full of yourself, isn't it? It's full of desire. I don't want to exist and I, I'm going to kill myself is a, the result of that, I, I dread. But with mindfulness, you can disappear, not exist, just by understanding the way things are. In the in the uh, suttas, one of my one of my favorite uh, quotes is, uh, let's see. There is the unborn, uncreated, unoriginated. And if there were not the unborn, uncreated, unoriginated, there would be no escape from the born, the created, and the originated. <coughs> but because there is the unborn, uncreated, unoriginated, there is the escape from the born, the created, the originated. Now that's a very profound statement. There is escape from the born, the created, and the originated. There is the unborn, uncreated, unearthed. Now, that, now that, those are negative terms. <clears throat> so it's obviously not something that you can, that, that you can uh, that is created or born or originated. It's uncreated. Now what is that in terms of your own experience? You have to apply it to your own experience of meditation. Not, not make it some kind of vague abstraction or ideal in your mind that seems so remote from anything that you're, that you're experiencing in daily life. That's what we tend to do, what God becomes or what ultimate reality or the absolute or or enlightenment or any of these these terms they they oftentimes they get exalted they, they have they're so remote or so separate from practical daily life and so we we kind of dismiss them almost because they they don't seem to apply to to the to the life that we're living Because we see life very much from the, you know, just, you know, having to get up in the morning, having to go to work, having to have a family, live with people, work with people, having to uh, pay bills, pay off mortgages, buy cars, prepare food, go on holidays, have fights with your mates, and so on. <laughs> And then we have, then we get, when we all have to get old, we have sicknesses and deaths and all this. So, so the, these kind of vague ideas of the absolute or the ultimate reality or God or, or uh, it's, it's, it gets kind of airy-fairy. 
I think you're just speaking about, you know, airy-fairiness. It's nothing to do with the nitty-gritty of life. You know, paying off the mortgage. We're having to, we're building a temple in England. When I go back to England, I've got to get involved in that again. <laughs> I'd rather commune with the absolute. <laughs> Nothing to do with bricks and mortar and cement and fundraising. And all that. <laughs> Within, with reflecting, uh, uh, reflection, contemplation, and intuitive awareness, these words I use, are, you know, don't, don't see the unconditioned, unborn, uncreated as something remote. Uh, that is uh, some, some state you might realize maybe after years of, of hard work meditating in some remote Himalayan cave. <laughs> And the romantic images, anyway, of, you know, the going off into the mountains and getting enlightened there. And then we're stuck in the cities or the or other places that don't seem very conducive towards such a, a realization. But this is where in Dhamma, the word Dhamma is, is, uh, is, is a word that means everything and nothing, something and nothing. Dhamma is all-inclusive, includes everything and nothing. And if you have one, you have the other. If you have the created, you have the uncreated. And so the this is why in investigating the created or the form, the originated, the condition, you, you're, you're like your breath, you see that it's uh, inhaling, it arises and ceases, arises and ceases, until the body dies, then it stops doing that. But there's also that which is aware of the arising and ceasing of your breath. It's not your breath, is it? That which is observing, that is mindful of the breath, of it arising and ceasing. What's that? Now that, that's, the, that's the paradigm, isn't it? The, the knowing, the mindfulness, knowing things as they are. Like knowing is a very important word in Buddhism. Knowing, because this is experience of being a separate conscious entity is the experience of knowing. So, knowing the breath is where we see where, where we're not trying to, to make any uh, problems about it or, or add anything to it, but just knowing the arising knowing when it's arising, when it's ceasing, arising, ceasing. So we begin to establish this sense of knowing or mindfulness with something that, that's happening, such as the breathing, or the knowing of the sensations of the body, or the, the, the contemplating the sensations and feelings of your own body.
or that listens to the sound of silence. What is it that listens and hears and recognizes the, the, the nada? What is it when, say, when you get hungry that knows hunger? Or when you feel anger that knows that there's anger? Or when you feel greed knows that there's greed? These are, so that which knows isn't greed, isn't hatred, isn't delusion, isn't desire, isn't self, isn't the breath, isn't the silence, isn't the body. So that's what I mean by your refuge. Refuge is in that intuitive awareness. And that's why I'm encouraging, talking like this, encouraging you to trust in it, because, because one of the big, biggest problems that Western Buddhists have is with faith, because we, we uh, oftentimes don't have a lot of trust or faith to carry us through difficult times or great doubts and uh, disillusionments. When Ajahn Chah uh, had his uh, stroke years ago, ten years before he died, it's interesting to see how many monks were disillusioned. And uh, how many were not disillusioned by the by the uh, Ajahn Chah's uh, sickness. Because there's some people that were based on Ajahn Chah being a particular kind of charismatic personality plus type teacher. And then when he, when he had his stroke he wasn't, he was like a sack of potatoes. Sitting in a wheelchair, slobbering. Who wants a teacher like that? <laughs> when he was a kind of he used to be very you know, charming and outgoing and and witty and then suddenly here he's just sitting there like just an old man in a wheelchair uh, with a kind of blank expression on his face and so people get disillusioned, they think, it's disappointed. Disappointed me. Or, say, those who really understood what he was teaching then realized was, you were watching this. You feel nobody was joyful and happy that this happened to Ajahn Chah. But we certainly uh, were not, uh, we could certainly observe what we were feeling, our emotional uh, reactions to this change, this sudden change. So, I remember it happened when I was in England and it happened during the, the rainy season retreat, which is usually in, from July, full moon of July to the full moon of October. And so then the, I heard that, that he had this stroke and was taken to a hospital in Bangkok, so I uh, have to the. I have to stay. You're not supposed to, to go, 
from this uh, three, for this three months. So I waited till the end of the range retreat and then flew right off to Bangkok, going to the Chulalongkorn Hospital and there walking in and seeing Ajahn Chah in a wheelchair, like sitting like a sack of potatoes. I felt this, this uh, grief. I could, but there was a knowing of this grief. It wasn't like something that I was lost in. It was, it was a natural reaction of seeing something that you, seeing uh, something that is, uh, that you grieve about. But that which knows the grief wasn't grieving. That's your refuge. Same thing uh, when my parents died. There was a knowing of the feelings that I was experiencing, but that which knows isn't isn't grieving, isn't sorrowful. So the grieving and sorrow is is a part of our hum- emotional experience, but but there's that which is aware of, of these emotional reactions. <coughs> That's, that's another word I try to bring up is the word emotion because it's a common enough English word uh, that uh, it also explains that how we react to things like anger or and all these, these that we're, we're emotional creatures we feel like we're not we try to be rational and reasonable about everything and uh Cool. We want to be cool, don't we? Be reasonable, and, but we still have these emotions, and you, you notice how they 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 come up. In they can, we can uh, corny movies can bring up emotions. They bring them up in me. I can start feel tears arising over very kind of contrived and corny scenes in videos and movies. <laughs> so any anything that like like I find things that bring up tears uh, are things like like very touching scenes uh, like uh, I remember sitting on a, on an airplane one time, uh, coming to America, and they were they were the in-flight film was the color purple. Did you see that? That was really you know you were washing tears. The whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Especially that scene where the 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 lady that had been a kind of living a rather uh, uh, unwholesome life. Uh, uh, finally went to meet her preacher father and they embraced. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) A wash in a sea of tears. Those are powerful and emotionally uh, arousing these uh, feelings that we have. But there's also that which is aware of of that emotion. It's not cold heart. We're not. We're not despising emotion. In other words, we're not. 
saying we shouldn't be emotional, but we, but to be lost in either just indulging in emotions, just playing with emotions, or just trying to stop them and resist them and reject them, those are the two extremes. In that where we just get caught into emotional habits and just wallow in it, is one extreme, and then the other is rejection of feeling or emotion, suppression of it. So the, the middle way then is the witness to it, to, to notice it's like this. And to, that's why in, in, in our retreat, or listening to the silence, or to learn to relax with, uh, to pay attention, just to pay attention and listen and be aware. Say, is training yourself to, to rest and to trust and relax in, a, in the most natural uh, state that a human being could possibly experience, but which is almost uh, ignored or unrecognized or unappreciated by most humanity. <laughs> we say in uh, oftentimes with men, my generation of men, we were, we tried to reject emotions. It was very, uh, you were not supposed to cry or to have emotions. As men, you're supposed to be tough. Emotions are were considered weak, sign of weakness. So you're supposed to, to maintain this kind of macho exterior. Nothing bothers me. You can, nothing can hurt me. I'm, I'm tough. And uh, this, is, uh, this was uh, kind of the, the male uh, archetype available to us back in the 40s and 50s. 30s even. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> and so this was uh, this was a conditioning, a social conditioning, uh, to to try to make yourself not feel things. But it doesn't work, and it's only, you're only fooling yourself. Uh, because you, you know, you can put on an act sometimes and impress people by how tough you are, but uh, inwardly you may you may feel very vulnerable and very sensitive, but you don't want anyone to know. You have to develop a a, a way of presenting yourself that's always defensive and protective. So society does, we, we get caught into the demands of a society, how we're socially conditioned, you know, is, a, is a something that uh, we all experience. We, we, from the time we're born, we start, the process starts, we acquire the, the views, opinions, the attitudes of our parents and our class or ethnic background. But intuitive awareness can see that, because intuitive awareness isn't ethnic conditioning. It's not the latest fashion, it's not, it's not a, a class identity, it's not a, a, a racial 
thing. It's not male or female. In other words, it's the transcending of the conditioning through this paying attention, being aware of the way things are. Buddha emphasized were things like anatta rather than rather than putting it in a more positive sense like sometimes you hear in Hinduism the the the, the big self and the little self or the over self or the, the the kind of the the eternal self or the these words uh, are ways of talking about the same thing but the Buddha avoided trying to conceive uh, uh, something in a positive in, in a positive symbol because it's it's he, uh, he realized that actually the this way of of just letting go the, the problem solves itself it's not a matter of trying to find something that's called the big self or to or people will start grasping the the uncreated uh, the, as the real self or my true nature is uncreated that kind of thing and we even avoid uh, getting caught up into that type of thinking you don't need to think anymore it's a realization <coughs> you don't need to conceive it and you don't have to create some network or framework for it you, because it's a realization <coughs> So the sense of yourself as being a, um, a person, a body, a personality, an ego, your emotions, your habits, and that begins to, uh, you, you, you begin to see it in, in, in a context as something coming and going rather than assuming that you are a person, the same person all the time. Personality is is something that comes and goes when you watch, when you observe it. When somebody is asleep, they don't have any personality, do they? They're not a person anymore. But we still project and say, that's Ajahn Sumedho asleep. But <laughs> 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 that's projection from your mind, isn't it? That's, but what's actually when, uh, when, when I'm sleeping, there's no sense of myself that I've noticed in sleep. <laughs> or in, in silence, in mindfulness. Now I've developed a practice of mindfulness for 30 years now. So, so this is, uh, you know, half my life has been uh, cultivating this way. And at first, I found that the, the uh, sense of myself was so, I mean, the beginning years were just so fraught with myself. I was always trying to get rid of myself. Didn't particularly like myself. I wasn't somebody that liked myself very much. So I was more, on the, I was thinking if some people would like to go to a heavenly realm, and live with God in a heavenly state and happiness for eternity. I thought, 
I'd hate that. <laughs> all, I, all I want is out of this mess. <laughs> Oblivion sounded great to me. I never, I'm just disappearing into a void. That sounded pretty nice. <laughs> disappear into a void. <clears throat> so I'll say my tendencies would be more toward annihilation or nihilism. And that's probably why I favored Buddhism over Christianity. And <laughs> 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 that's a, a that is a, a tendency that I have is towards, uh, say, suppression, annihilation, uh, longing for death, in a way. In a, yeah, I remember even as a small child, I had this death wish all the time, wanting to die. So this, this uh, where this comes from, I don't know, but it certainly, I was never suicidal, but I certainly had this this wanting to disappear, wanting to vanish. I used to think it'd be nice to be invisible. If you could develop invisibility. I was, when I was a boy, I remember they had these movies about people who would discover how to become invisible. That would be wonderful. Just to disappear. Then in meditation, I, I began to, I remember when I first, uh, the first year I was a novice monk, and I remember when they first took me to this meditation monastery in Nongkai, and this was before I met Ajahn Shah, it was a dark night, and they took me to this little hut called a kuti, and uh, there, they, uh, there was no electricity, And, and they had little candles or uh, kerosene lamps. So I um, remember, remember when, when everybody left me there in this kuti, I blew out the candle and I sat in the darkest corner of this kuti and I felt this sense of joy like I could put my hand right in front of my eyes, I couldn't see it, it was so dark. I thought, I've disappeared at last <laughs> into the blackness. There's so much self-aversion or just wanting to, to bail out or get out of it. But then how to disappear in, in a skillful way rather than just out of desire to destroy yourself because you don't like who you are? And so this is the conundrum that we have in meditation. Non-self, what is it? as a realization. And this is for you to investigate. This is, I mean, I can tell you how I did it and I can and give you kind of advise you on techniques, but that's it. I mean, it's not, it's still, you know, something that you have to experiment with yourself. And so, this is one reason why I found the sound of silence so helpful, because I found that a very, it's like something that you, easy to, once you recognize it, once you 
acknowledge it and uh, develop it, then it, it, it helps to, as a reference. Don't make anything out of it. Don't make it into some kind of attainment or a big thing. It's merely a, a helpful sign. And a kind of ringing in background uh, subtle kind of crystalline electric ringing, high pitch ringing. Very subtle. <coughs> because in that state then it's a way of listening also. Because you're listening and, and listening is a is one uh, listening is a sense that uh, that say we can do with our eyes closed in the dark or wherever we are we can listen and listening also like you can hear the the birds singing listen to the train listen to the sound of rain listen to the silence all together and you're embracing the all of all of sound in, a, in, in the present. I can hear those birds. But those birds, the chirping of the birds is also within the silence of the mind. And then your ability to reflect is that you're, you're using your thinking abilities not to reinforce a self-view or to figure things out, but just to keep pointing, trying to to uh, pick, to to waken yourself, to to look at things, and you can bring in uh, just the, the question of what is self then? When do I become me, Ajahn Sumedho, this person? And in the silence, there's no person. I can't find any Ajahn Sumedho in the silence. But then, then I can. Uh, but then Ajahn Sumedho comes and goes. And so, this uh, I have to think. I create Ajahn Sumedho. Sometimes it's uh, deliberately. Uh, one thing I've had a lot of uh, one of the one of the subtle problems of my life in the past eighteen years, twenty years, has been uh, having to be a teacher and uh, having to be an abbot monastery. So, like I was thrown into the teaching position when I only had eight years as a monk. And Ajahn Chah kind of pushed me into that role. It was, somebody had to do it, and, uh, and I was the only monk uh, who could speak English in his monastery. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, So then, I'd already, I was quite willing, I'd, I was determined to do whatever Ajahn Chah wanted me to do, so this, is, this was obviously a way to help. 
But there's also a, a resentment, especially going to England, uh, in, in England 18 years, where there's been a, a lot of resentment of having to always be such a, a, a central figure for everything. So I'd feel this resentment. It would come out in, in things like uh, just feeling burdened or overwhelmed, everybody looking at me all the time, everybody waiting for me to come in, waiting for me to leave, bowing to me, uh, having to, to be, uh, having to kind of always uh, kind of say something, people waiting for me to say something. <laughs> And I like long flights on airplanes. You, know? <laughs> you sit in those seats and those flights and you're nobody. You're just another body in a seat. <laughs> Relief, to, like going to New Zealand. Like I really love long flights. <laughs> Take hours. And so, uh, this is, and so this resentment would come up. Well, with mindfulness, I, I began to notice this resentment. At first, it almost seemed justified, you know, or I tend to suppress it. I, I just, I think much of the time, I would just suppress it. I'd say, no, no, can't think like that, and just reject it, this resentment. Uh, so then, but then, uh, at other times, because I was rejecting it, that would come up, you know, you feel it. I remember kind of really you know, really being quite abrupt or rude to people just because of this, because of this suppressed resentment. Uh, and so, uh, then, beginning to recognize it and to feel this resentment, to contemplate it as an object. But the, that which is aware is not resentful. That was uh, what I kept contemplating. There's, there's this feeling of resentment, but that which is aware of that feeling, that's not resentment. That's my, that's my refuge, is in that awareness, not in the feeling. When I take refuge in the feeling, then I can make a, you know, a scene about it, and make myself suffer over it. So this position that we're in also, and recognize it as a human entity, we're, we're individual entities for a lifetime. So we're, we're at this place in the universe, you know, the universe, like we are the center of the universe. Each one of us is the center, practically speaking. This isn't, you know, overestimation of one's personality. <laughs> but it's, practically speaking, isn't it? Each one of us is experiencing life from this point here. And we have to experience it for a whole lifetime in this body. So, so right now, you are, you're in my consciousness. When I look at you in this room, you're in the mind, I'm in my mind. 
and there's this, this which knows, sees your forms in this room. But that which which knows, I mean, the eye is a function in nature, but they they can't uh, see themselves or anything. They're just organs, sense organs. But that which is is aware, say, is pure. That's intelligent. That's there's wisdom there. So that's why when we when we are mindful, then we're receptive to wisdom and to understanding, seeing things as they are. This wisdom isn't a kind of acquired knowledge from uh, sayings out of books, but it's it's a it's the the wisdom. We're living in a in a universe that's where there's wisdom, and we're we're in touch with that wisdom through mindfulness. We can contact. We can, we can be that through through the simple, paying attention and listening, watching. And another time, somebody came to me. One of the nuns came to me and said, uh, "I have these terrible dark moments, and uh, where everything seems black. What do I?" How do I deal with that? Where everything seems black and dark in my life. And then, you know, you can cheer them up and say, well, you know, you're okay. (laughs) 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 Or, (laughs) you say, that which sees the blackness, is that black or is that dark? Or try in a, in a dark room tonight, in your room, when turn out all the lights so that your eyes are just seeing blackness, the dark. But that which sees isn't dark, isn't, isn't black. So, I mean, this, this, is, this is reflecting, pointing to, just this, this uh, ability, this lightened state, this enlightened natural state we're in. Enlightenment is a, is a natural state that, that is with us all the time, but we, we forget, we, we uh, overlook, we, we are ignorant of it. Now emotionally, it's difficult to understand, because emotionally we, we, feel, we feel this kind of talk can make us feel very doubtful or insecure. Because we, we think maybe we've, we've got to find it or we've got to get it. But it's just that simple witnessing of that, of just how you, you're reacting to this kind of talk this evening. What is that like? What, what, do you, what, do you, what is your emotional reaction to what I've been saying? That's, then you're aware that it's an emotional reaction. That that alone is enough to trust in that. This ability to see the the uh, to see things as they really are. Then, in the ordinariness of life, we that's that's why monastic life, say, is is uh, monotonous. It's uh, 
you know, because they chanting or why we, you know, we hate precepts, so people are asked to refrain from dancing, singing, going to shows, doing exciting, interesting, fascinating, fun things. And not to kill is the first one, isn't it? That's killing is exciting. They tell me. <laughs> and uh, stealing, that could be exciting. <laughs> and uh, sex is exciting. And speech, we can get excited through speech. And uh, drinking and taking drugs is really exciting. <laughs> drinking liquor and taking all these hallucinogenic drugs and then uh, eating is exciting and uh, dancing, singing, playing games, going to shows, watching television, dressing up, painting your fingernails, having your hair done. <laughs> <laughs> Wearing diamonds and rubies, it's exciting. And and then sleeping, that's not exciting, but it's another, isn't it? It's a, if we could sleep our lives through, just spend all your time in bed sleeping. <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> but they, then, then what, we don't have much to do, do we? If you can't dance, sing, uh, go entertainment and the noble silence. Here we're taking the speech one even further to noble silence. So so then the monotony, the boredom, the, the breath, isn't it? The anapanasati. Or the neutral feelings of the body, or the sound of silence. These are these in terms of emotional experience are boring. So we get bored with them. We get we feel emotionally resistant or bored or negative towards them. We can, those are emotional reactions to, to accept, not to criticize, but to just notice how we get, we can get very negative towards, uh, like I remember feeling really averse to Anapanasati, because I first did it with inspiration, and then I got bored with it. And then I, when I bored with it, I didn't want to do it. Remind the breath again. And I started resisting it. And then, then I feel guilty, thinking I should be doing it. And then you're, you're going around with a, you're making a habit around kind of doing it because you think you should. And guilty because if you don't do it. And, and then trying to find ways of not doing it. And avoiding it. And all these are emotional reactions to it, but the, these are, notice that, that these are, you know, that, that by, by recognizing these reactions you, and accepting them in, in, this, in this intuitive awareness, it's like an all-embracing, radar, embracing it all, non-judgmental, And then, and, and, and to, to remind yourself to relax and listen. Sometimes if you find yourself just, just, you know, you can't take any more than 
change or do something else, fair enough. But eventually, more and more, you, uh, as you have confidence in this practice, and even the subtle movements of your mind you're aware of, just the subtle kind of flickers and, and that, uh, that come and go, you, you can be aware of. And then there's the, the silence and the peace and the <coughs> emptiness and the non-self, desire and non-desire, desirelessness. And in life is very simple. It's uh, it's very uh, very simple. It's it sim- more simple because this is ultimate simplicity, isn't it? It can't get more simple than this. Do you have any questions? Yes? Uh, could you talk a little bit about dreaming and lucid dreams? Well, <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean lucid dreams? I can't do that. <laughs> but sometimes, there, there's, what I found, what I experienced, there's a kind of dream state that is a bit fuzzy and uh, is something, you know, that you do, I don't usually remember. But also, they're, 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 sometimes they're like visions you have, where you have very clear visions. They're usually... Or having it from insight or something that they and they 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 are very, I find that what I call a vision that is a very clear and you remember it and it uh, and and it, uh, and oftentimes it's it seems like a dream but it the fact it's in 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 a language of dream dream type language but it uh, so if you take it too literally oftentimes get it wrong. But like, uh, but oftentimes they're they're like either they can be predicting a future event or can be just verifying uh, insight that you've had recently. That's how I see it, anyway. Well, would dreams be uh, from the conditioned mind, or where where would they be? Well, like from, there's a lot like we, that is just, we, we don't allow into consciousness. So, 
like when we're conditioned by life with there's a lot that we we never allow in like fear and a lot of these emotions <coughs> negative emotions we oftentimes suppress so we have these defense mechanisms then in meditation you find a lot of these emotions coming up because you're you're not suppressing them anymore so like in uh, with people I mean, if you start feeling anger or, or fear or things like that in the, in the meditation hall, <coughs> sometimes that's a good sign, you know, that your things are coming up into consciousness. And it's through letting things into consciousness that you can let go of them. So, like unconscious conditions things that, because we can, we can, we can filter our mind without intending, without any uh, kind of conscious intention, it becomes habituated, becomes habit, force of habit, through uh, social and cultural conditioning and experience of life. So, so then, uh, as we, as the effect of meditation, as meditation has its effect, then the then some of these, many of these uh, things will start coming up into your consciousness. But that is a, like a purification. And you relate to it in terms of Dhamma. What arises ceases and is not self. Rather than uh, anxiety or worry about anger or hatred that you might be experiencing. When, when I first started meditation as a novice, I had two solid months of hatred and anger that I'd repressed for 32 years. This almost seemed to be continuous. But uh, just like anger was an emotion that, that uh, was very much suppressed in my life. And so then it... Uh, it came from a family where we were never, we were forbidden to show anger. <clears throat> so th then I developed ways of, of suppressing it. And, uh, but then it, you, you know, you become depressed because of that, through suppressing anger. And then in uh, in uh, in meditation, then this anger started coming coming up, and uh, I just uh, bear, endured it, accepted it, and then it finally seemed to it, it you know the, it it stopped after about two months. It long it seemed eternity, <laughs> and, and then it. Uh, and I had some very, some really clear mental states. And, you know, you, the mind was like in a very clear state with, without this, this repressed, rejected uh, negativity that had, that had, was making me very depressed and unhappy person at the age of 32. Then in uh, fear, another one, usually, or uh, being, say being idealistic, 
also I was very idealistic. So I had high standards and ideals of what life should be, what I should be. And uh, then I was always, uh, I could never live up to these standards. They were so high. <laughs> and so there's a lot, that, a lot of self-aversion from that, hating yourself because you can't, you can't be a kind of permanent ideal. <coughs> and so this was unrecognized also, this feeling worthless or failure or weak or inadequate because uh, of this high-mindedness uh, that I couldn't uh, possibly uh, ever be. I could never just reach and, and stay at such a high standard. And so then in meditation, you're realizing that what the human state is, that, you know, an ideal is a fixed thing, where for us life is a flux and a changing experience. You can't, you can't fix things, you can't, you can't, you know, nothing is permanent. So, so the best is only going to be a moment. You can't have the best as, a, as an ongoing permanent experience through the, in the conditioned realm. So that's where you're contemplating and using wisdom to see like how this ability to idealize is one function of the mind. That's why yesterday I was saying to make your intention this perfect intention, like to be free from all selfishness and realize and free from ignorance and realize the ultimate reality, using that ability to conceive the ultimate and the best. So that's uh, like the guiding star. That's your direction, and then the then the the path is dealing with the stuff that we have to deal with, which is you have to deal with the, with the, the conditioning of the mind, with the emotions, <coughs> with just the the body and its various uh, problems and uh, its aging and its disease and its weakness and its tiredness and its. Uh, forth it's, you know, it's not ideal isn't it? you can't you can't make your body ideal you can make a mar piece of marble into an ideal the Greeks were good at it perfect human form you know in marble but as far as uh, our own experience we're we're not made of that and even marble deteriorates. <laughs> well, you see, in reflecting, you can you can see what, how to the different functions of your mind and how to how to free yourself from identifying and attaching, like to ideas. Doesn't mean that you no longer have ideals, but your relationship to them is based on wisdom rather than on attachment. And then. Understanding the, what we have to face as a human entity on this planet makes us compassionate. We feel compassion for creatures because this is an ongoing kind of challenge of having to deal with sens sensory impingement all the time and with 
imperfections and and uh, uh, and with suffering as as an ongoing experience uh, in this sensual realm, and that all of us are involved in it, including the animals and every all all sentient beings. So that then we begin to have karuna or compassion. Where before I could be really hard-hearted because I could be very judgmental, as, as judgmental as I was against myself because I couldn't live up to the high standards. I was also very judgmental of others, you say. A very hard line sometimes towards other people. very rejecting or very dismissing or looking down on people because they they didn't live up to my high standard. (laughs) (laughs) As I couldn't do it either. (laughs) (laughs) Yes? Um, One of the things that that I'm most afraid of is getting old and having a stroke and being helpless. So I'd heard about Ajahn Chah. Didn't realize it was ten years, but where 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 do you know where he was with mindfulness in that ten years? Well I can all I know is that um, I mean he wasn't like a vegetable or anything. Uh, he was paralyzed and he he couldn't speak. But he was certainly could be aware, like he could gaze at you. He could move like, he could move one hand a bit and he could wiggle his toes. So you say, Ajahn Chah, if you understand what I'm saying, wiggle your toes, and he toes would go. I mean, he he could understand. But he had no way of, of returning. And sometimes I don't think he wanted to be bothered. (laughs) Right, I have no no doubt, but as a, I mean, he, uh, (coughs) he still was a good teacher even in that state, because, you know, then one wasn't, one was also serving teacher and, and he needed to, uh, everything I had to do for him <clears throat> but uh, the monks I think developed some of the monks uh, really became very good at nursing care <laughs> and he had the best uh, nursing care I think you could ever have on this planet because uh, everybody you know he was, every people loved him so much that's why he lived so long. <laughs> Anyone else would have died long before the ten years. But also, I used to think, and I dread that having that happen to me. But I let go of that thought. Even I let go of that one. If that happens, that's the way it is. <laughs> and, uh, like, like it, uh, when when you see how the, the the sense of yourself is involved, then you you let go of that, and then those problems are not, those aren't, you're not going to make problems of that. And and if such things happen, then I will deal with that when it happens. 
because I saw with Ajahn Chah also that he that uh, people like taking care of him they they benefited from looking after him <laughs> it wasn't like he, it was he was a nuisance and in everybody's way <coughs> he was he was people would, would have liked him to live ten more years so they could take care of him and that's good for people, especially men, I think, that oftentimes our nursing, our nurturing qualities are somewhat limited or not developed. And, that, and, that, and so that it, it brought out some very good qualities in some of his monks, both Thai and Western. I used to watching old people die. My my father, he died about seven eight years ago, <clears throat> and he was uh, he lived till about ninety one, and he he was a very cantankerous man. So he made taking care of him difficult because he was so grumpy and negative. So it's very difficult, and people like my sister just and incredibly, she was the brunt of a lot of it. And uh, then uh, they'd, they'd get a housekeeper or something, and the housekeeper would run away in tears because he, he was so rude to them. And, and, uh, and he ended up at 91 in total paralysis in a nursing home. And my sister told me, eventually kind of gave in and relaxed in his paralysis. <laughs> and, uh, and he died of quite a peaceful death. But, but for about 10 years, last 10 years, from 80 to 90, he, was, he, was, he made life very difficult for everyone. Because of just his, not because he needed to be cared for, but because of his uh, negativity. So then you think, well, if that happens to me, at least I can make it pleasant for everyone. You know, you can make people happy. <coughs> even they don't mind cleaning you up, wiping your bottom, and changing you know, the bed and that. Thing. People, we we can get used to that very quickly. People don't mind that. It's the bad vibes that is what we get. <laughs> you know, somebody that's just always negative and uh, complaining, criticizing. That's, that wears you out. You have to be a real, really developed person to bear that one. With equanimity. talking about Dhamma language, uh, Dhamma speak, and um, my question is, is it 
Um, it's, you were saying this is uh, Dhamma language as a way of interpreting our experience different than the way we usually do it. And is it just another language? Uh, we have all these different ways of interpreting our experience. Is Dhamma language just another one alongside, or does it have some special status with respect to reality? Well, it, yeah, yeah. you see what I'm saying? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, it, 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 see, it's developed by the Buddha. It's a, it's a way of using language that we acquire because uh, we're all conditioned from a culture, and we have a mm -hmm. we we get our language through uh, through not through wisdom or through enlightened beings, but through just a cultural process. So we think, we, we think our, you know, our thought patterns and ways of, of thinking are based on these illusions of a, of a kind of permanent self and, and the values of a materialist world or a particular ethnic or a cultural attitude. And, uh, so this is, uh, you know, this is, this is our basic way of looking, of interpreting life. Through, through our language and thoughts that come from the, that are formed through language. And so then now, say this is learning Dhamma language is, is where uh, using words that are pointing to the way things are rather than just trying to, to uh, condition us to think in, along a cultural pattern. So that's why it's not, you're not really even becoming a Buddhist. It's not like you know, the, that you're becoming a, a Buddhist, but you're, you're uh, in the terms of, of just adopting Buddhist terminologies, like, you know, and, and just uh, uh, using Buddhist phrases and, and Buddhist uh, icons. But you're, you're uh, saying breaking out, you're, you're transcending the conditioning process. So the Dhamma language isn't to condition you or to make you a convert to Buddhism or to make you into a Buddhist personality, but it's, it's aimed solely at awakening the mind for you to contemplate. So like we say with anatta, sometimes Buddhists will say, Buddha, you have to be a Buddhist, you have to believe in karma, rebirth, and non-self. They're making it into a system of belief the Buddhist belief, karma, rebirth, and anatta. And, uh, and we don't believe in God. There's no God in Buddhism. And if you talk about God, you're not a Buddhist. And, uh, and all this, this is a kind of hardline <coughs> style that you sometimes come across. <coughs> but uh, to me, that's just, I mean, you know, it's just a, uh, telling you, you know, conditioning you to, to believe in karma, rebirth, and, no, and, uh, and a belief that there's no self. Well, when you believe that you know, there's no self, it, it, what good is that? <laughs> I mean, as far as conventional reality goes, there is a self. It's me, here. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, uh, it, uh, to convince myself that I don't exist, it's, it's absurd. 
but um, but then anatta then is is uh, is not a teaching you you grasp or believe in, but it's a teaching pointing, making you investigate what is yourself. What is self? You know, so you're kind of looking and and, and looking in a different way rather than just adopting a, what somebody tells you or what what a particular convention says you have to believe in. You're you're awakening yourself. You're awakening your mind to to looking at things more directly and more honestly than you would say if you didn't have such a skillful tool. And then the Buddha described the conventions as like the raft that you you know, he's never said his teaching was the ultimate reality. He said, you know, it's a it's a expedient means. It's a raft that you use to get across the river. But if you, you know, it's not a a raft is. I like that symbol of a raft because it's like it, you, it's made up of the stuff you find on a on the seashore. And you don't need a nuclear submarine or even a, a fancy yacht. You, if you get, you know, it's like, and that's what you're doing. You're taking the flotsam and jetsam of your, of your experience, <laughs> making, it, using it to get across the stream. You're not, you're not, you don't have to be a rich person to get a nice cabin cruiser to go across. You, you use what you have, what's the, what's available. That's enough to get across. That's my reflection on it. Because we all have to learn from the way we are. We're not going to learn from the way the best person in the world is. We have to learn from the way, from the stuff that we have. Good or bad, whatever it is. It doesn't mean that only people with the best equipment can do it. That's not the that's not the point. So that's why it's not an exclusive approach. You know, it's not saying you have to be born into a certain caste and you have to have a high education and you have to uh, be a you know have have, have all kinds of uh, um, virtues that you don't feel you have or all kinds of abilities that you you don't you don't have, and then you think, well, I have to be born again in next lifetime. But the Buddha was pointing to, to uh, the here and now. This is, this is, he says, this is a teaching, deva manusa, for devas, or celestial beings, and for manusya, or human beings. So, so this is why this human human state is so highly regarded in Buddhism. It's considered just the fact that you're a human being that you're that you're here listening, interested. That means you've got accumulated virtues to be enlightened. <laughs> Whether you think you have any or not doesn't isn't the matter. The fact. Because sometimes we we oftentimes uh, see ourselves only in very in the you know in uh, take the the worst things and exaggerate them. And we don't uh, appreciate 
And anybody that come and spend ten days in silence has got something going for them on a spiritual level. <laughs> Sit here. <laughs> Listening to the sound of silence for ten days. I mean, when you could be out dancing, singing, <laughs> <laughs> taking drugs. <laughs> Shall we chant this uh, sharing of blessings?